joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like John, Robin, Janet, Ben, Walker, and Garrett, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you are able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store if you feel inclined. So check it out. Those were the sounds of a growling streaked gurnard, a chorus of freshwater drum, a bocon toadfish, and a drumming red piranha graciously provided by today's guest, Audrey Luby. Audrey is a PhD student in the UF Fisheries and Aquatic Sciences Department and at the Nature Coast Biological Station under doctors Charlie Martin and Laura Reynolds. Her dissertation is titled, From Global to Local, fish sound production and coastal soundscape ecology and includes projects on Gulf toadfish calling, intertidal soundscapes of a living in a hardened shoreline and community level impacts of anthropogenic noise pollution. She earned her master's at the University of Florida studying the effects of submerged aquatic vegetation restoration on fish habitat use. Prior to that, she worked as a research assistant at the Smithsonian Marine Station on projects in Florida and Belize, and conducted research in the kelp forests around Catalina Island during her undergrad at the University of Southern California. In addition, she has compiled a comprehensive inventory of fish species that have been shown to produce sound. She has been working with an international group of collaborators to create the Fish Sounds website to present her inventory along with recordings of fish sounds donated by researchers. Her review article on the project was recently accepted to reviews in fish biology and fisheries and will be out sometime later this year. Welcome to the podcast, Audrey. Happy to have you on. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) Um, So to kick things off, I guess I'm curious what sort of inspired your interest in research in fisheries and aquatic sciences. I know people kind of start from a bunch of different directions. So I'd love to hear what got you into it. Yeah, I always chuckle a little bit when I get this question because I was actually afraid of the ocean growing up. (laughs) I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, I got attacked by a wave when I was really little Mm -hmm. and so I was pretty nervous around the water. Yeah. Um, But then uh, I signed up for a semester abroad my freshman year of undergrad at the University of Southern California. I got to spend the semester on Catalina Island and took a scientific scuba diving course. And I absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, I suddenly wasn't afraid of the ocean anymore. And (laughs) diving in the kelp forests felt like flying through, you know, terrestrial forests. It was Mm -hmm. was the coolest thing ever. And I decided right there that that's what I wanted to do. Um, and I, yeah, <laughs> and I got to do a lot of research projects while I was there. And then in the years after that, while still in undergrad, so it just fell into place. And since then I've just pursued any opportunity I could get to, to work in this field. Um, yeah, I am more, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. That's so cool. I love that you faced your fear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, very funny how things work out that way. Um, But yeah, I am more of an ecologist by trade, um, but Mm -hmm. I've really enjoyed being a part of the UF 
fisheries and aquatic sciences department because I've gotten to learn a lot more about fisheries science than I ever did and and aquaculture and and it's yeah. been really interesting to get different perspectives from the you know related but slightly different fields. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess touching on those past experiences, could you kind of give me a rundown on some of the research you conducted prior to your PhD at UF? Sure. So I've focused mostly on applied ecology questions. So I'm most interested in looking at especially community ecology, fish habitat interactions, but especially how any study I do can be applied to management decisions or um, figuring out how ecosystems work in a particular area. Um, so some of I've I've hopped around ecosystems quite a lot. I started in kelp forests, like I said, yeah. I did lakes for my uh, masters, and then mm -hmm. I've also done seagrasses and corals and in Palau and Belize, South Florida, and then. Now I'm focusing mainly on the estuaries around Cedar Key, Florida. So definitely an ecosystem generalist. Yeah, but very diverse. <laughs> yeah, but it's been really fun to learn about so many different ecosystems and, and what makes them all tick. Um, and in those, I've, I've touched on a bunch of different projects like ocean acidification, impacts on corals, chemical key preferences of coral and fish larvae. Um, uh, creating an inventory of species diversity in an MPA off Catalina Island. And then my master's was uh, on an adaptive restoration of Lake Apopka, Florida, where mm -hmm. I got to do fish habitat uh, experiments and then field sampling to directly inform the restoration of the lake, which was really cool. Oh, that's awesome. It's cool to, you know, be on projects that have kind of that measurable clear impact. I always find that exciting. Yeah, same. It's really cool. Okay, well, I guess um, without further ado, we can move on to talking about fish sounds. Um, I'm really excited to learn more about this. So um, it seems like a lot of people kind of underestimate or don't really know about kind of fish's noise-making capacity. Um, so I was wondering if you could kind of clear that up for us. Um, and tell me, I guess, what types of sounds fish are able to make and kind of why they might make noise? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I've definitely encountered this uh, with this as my research topic where I'll be yeah. talking to my family or some friends and they're like, what fish make sounds? Um, <laughs> so even just the initial, oh, fish are able to make sounds is kind of surprising, but we have known that fish have been able to make sound for a really long time. It's just mm -hmm. been more of a niche knowledge in some ways, but Aristotle described fish sound production and posture possible fish hearing in his writings. And then of wow. course, um, fishers have long known that fish can make sound evident from names like drums, croakers, grunts, all of yep. those are based <laughs> on the sounds that they make. So mm -hmm. it's definitely been known, but for uh, a variety of reasons, some of which I can guess at, um, fish sound production and its study hasn't been quite as popular or widely known as, as other groups like marine mammals or birds. Some of this might have to do with fish sounds are fairly quiet and also low frequency and kind of rare. So they're a lot harder to detect than something like a humpback whale song. Or yeah. if you know, you're just a person walking around in the woods, you can hear bugs and birds and, and frogs making sounds all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but, but fish are fairly quiet. And then also there are a lot of fish species out there. So there's over, there, uh, fish base has it at about 34,000 species of fish. Yeah. And so that's a lot of species to describe their sounds of when they're hard to study initially anyway. Mm -hmm. Compare that with marine mammals where it's like <laughs> just over 200 species. Yeah, there's not you know? that many of them. That's a great point. There's yeah, exactly. There's diversity of fish that so it's like, how could you listen to all of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so fish, first off, fish can make sound. Um, and they, there are sort of two main categories of sound that get talked about. Um, we, uh, 
the, the terminology for this goes back and forth a lot, but we call them active and passive sounds. Um, so active sounds you can think are for the purposes of communication. They often use specialized sonic organs of some kind. And um, you can think of this as being similar to bird song. But then as with anything, fish can also make passive sounds just as a result of their regular activities. They're not trying to make sound, but they might be digging in the sand to find food or parrotfish munching on a coral reef can be quite <laughs> noisy. Um, so both of those types of sounds can carry a lot of signal information that other fish or other species even can use to learn more about their environment. Um, and what's particularly unique in water is that sound can actually travel a lot faster and further than on land. Mm. And it's not restricted as much as other types of cues. Like if you picture visual cues, a lot of places in the ocean are really yeah. murky or, you know, night happens and, and you suddenly lose your ability to use that sense. Or mm -hmm. if you're talking about chemical cues, those can go really far with ocean currents, but they're fairly slow moving and mm -hmm. um, depend on water currents for transport where sound can move in all directions with very little uh, limited um, impediments to its yeah. travel. So it's a really valuable sensory mechanism for, for fish, for example, to take advantage of. That's so cool. I guess, yeah, it's, um, I think maybe hard for people to I get, get past what our senses are telling us. And, you know, when a person's underwater, we don't hear anything. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, yeah, so this is one thing I always think is fun. If, uh, you know, any of your listeners or you have been snorkeling or, or scuba diving, you hear a crackling in the water. Mm -hmm. It took me a couple of years to figure this out, but those are actually all snapping shrimp oh, making so sounds. Nice. It's, it's not just your ears doing something wacky to create the static. It's actually a whole bunch of little invertebrates making all of those sounds. Oh, um, awesome. So. Yeah, <laughs> but it's hard to hard to know that, and and our hearing is certainly a lot more limited compared to our sight. But um, yeah, there are. If you think of it, comparing it to you know how birds use sound, then maybe it becomes a bit more intuitive why fish would as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then I guess um, another piece of that question is there. Um, I guess like a set of reasons why fish tend to make sound or they're um, like certain times where they'll make certain sounds. Um. Sure. So one of the coolest <laughs> things about fish as a group of sound producing animals is they're characterized by their variety. They mm -hmm. have the largest group of sonic organs, like mechanisms for making sound. And um, they have a paper just came out recently that showed that they've evolved sound production possibly as much as 33 different times. Oh, wow. Um, and there's also secondary loss of sound production. So some fish may, in their, in their uh, ancestors, may have evolved the ability to use sound, but then yeah. they lose it for some reason. So there's no consistent all fish make sound, all fish make sound this way, we can mm -hmm. predict it evolutionarily. It's very, very diverse. Um, but if you're talking species to species, fish use sound for most, if not all of the reasons you could think of. Some of the loudest sounds get produced for reproduction. Mm -hmm. So fish will form large calling aggregations where a bunch of the males usually will get together and sing to advertise their presence either yeah. to other males to create a spawning aggregation or you know to get the females to come stop by and visit them. Mm -hmm. um, you can also have fish who when they're in distress, um, they'll, they'll make sounds to try to scare away whatever's bothering them. So if you're ever fishing around the Gulf of Mexico and happen to catch a pig fish, they're mm -hmm. called pig fish because they make pig <laughs> sounds. And their sounds that they're making is because they're distressed and annoyed at being caught by, by someone oh. fishing. <laughs> yeah. And so they'll also make those sounds underwater if something else is bothering them. 
Mm -hmm. um, you can also have, uh, you know, fish trying to defend their territory. They'll use sounds to try to scare off other competitors. Mm -hmm. um, this is particularly prevalent in the damselfish, uh, some of my favorite fish to encounter on the reef because they'll yeah. attack anything <laughs> that gets in their territory and they'll make clicking sounds to, to help scare off whatever's bothering them or trying to encroach on their territory. Yeah. Um, and you can even have, uh, so in the seahorses, this is fairly common, but you can have competitive feeding sounds where they'll make clicking sounds when they're eating with others of their species, but not if they're eating alone. So it's sort of to mark like, hey, this is my food I'm oh, eating so here. Interesting. <laughs> or it could also be to advertise to others like, hey, there's food over here. So it, you know, it's sometimes figuring out the exact reason why fish are behaving yeah. can be a it's little complicated. Sure. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's usually thought to be competitive in those yeah. cases. That's so neat. Yeah. So a wide variety of options. Yeah. That's awesome. I guess I didn't really um, kind of know sort of the evolutionary scale at which sound production was popping up in fishes. So that's really awesome. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So um, just to add on to that too, there are usually how fish evolve the ability to use sound is through what's called exaptation. So it's not necessarily that they'll evolve an organ specifically for sound on its own. Usually yeah. it's related to some other type of mechanism. So fish usually produce sounds for communication through two mechanisms, stridulation, which is rubbing uh, calcium structures of some kind against each other. Um, and yeah. so this is particularly prominent if you have teeth as a fish to eat other things. And so you can just click them together and then now you have a sound produ producing oh. mechanism. Yeah. Um, and then they can also use their swim bladder, which they've evolved, you know, for other reasons, possibly like buoyancy mm -hmm. or also to help with hearing. Um, and then they may also eventually evolve their ability to use their swim bladder to amplify any of the sounds that they're producing. Um, so oh, it's usually me. they're taking advantage of structures that they might already have and then using it for another purpose. Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, I guess, yeah, they've got like that built-in residence chamber almost. Exactly. Yeah. That's so so it, it can really help change how their sounds, sounds are being produced, amplify it or change the frequency. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Um, and then I guess taking sort of a step back to look at research on fish sounds kind of in general, um, like what's the current state of our knowledge? Um, or I guess, how much has this been investigated over the years? Um, so it's, I, I find it very interesting how a lot of these studies started. So it, actually the U.S. Navy was one of the first main uh, investors into documenting and cataloging fish sounds. And this is because they wanted to be able to listen passively to other uh, submarines in the water. Oh. But then when they put out their hydrophones to listen, they heard all of this other racket. Yeah, going there's on. all this static. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was the snapping shrimp, then there were all these weird fish sounds, and what do those mean? Or, you know, what what do ship sound or submarine sounds even sound like? Yeah. So they they put a lot of effort into cataloging, testing, doing systematic surveys of fish species to identify their sounds in order to help them in their naval activities. Yeah, to sort of comb through that noise. I guess I never thought about that. It would be kind of like putting a microphone in a rock concert or something and trying to exactly. find one noise. <laughs> Um, and then on the flip side, something else interesting I found is that a lot of the studies studying passive fish sound productions, you know, incidental fish sound production, actually come from aquaculture activities. Oh. So you can, you know, if you listen, you can't necessarily see the fish that you're feeding all the time or when they stop feeding, but mm -hmm. you could use sound in order to detect, you know, how much they're eating and by listening to their chewing sounds and then when they stop so that you can optimize the amount of food that you're putting into a system. So actually there are a lot of studies out of Japan and also the former Soviet and the Soviet Union 
um, wow. had a lot of studies about passive fish sound production, which was, you know, sometimes gets ignored by the field a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. But there's a lot of other applications for um, listening to passive sounds as well. Yeah, um, that's so interesting. I guess I would not have expected that, that it came from mostly aquaculture, but that's a really clever way to kind of know mm -hmm. what the fish are doing. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, uh, a lot of the study of fish sound production has come from a more ecological curiosity, but also very mm -hmm. much an applied focus of yeah. how can we use listening to sounds to learn more about what's going on for various mm -hmm. application purposes. So now a lot of the focus is actually on fisheries management, trying yeah. to apply sound, especially to find spawning aggregations, mm -hmm. or also to detect the spread of invasive species. So if you have an invasive species that makes sound, then oh. you can use, you can passively listen to them it, and you can sample a lot quicker or possibly over a lot uh, wider spread or for a longer period of time than just trying to go out and catch the fish mm -hmm. itself. Yeah, that makes so a lot of sense, I guess. It, mm -hmm. You know, removes that having to look and find <laughs> that big challenge in that. That's right, cool. so it's the field has been driven a lot by those applied questions as well, which was part of what interested me in the field so much um, but with all of the work that's been done, you know, decades of research, um, there's still so much we don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's the other exciting part is there are whole fish families that have never been examined to see whether they produce sound or not, um, or regions where there's been very little work done on studying what the sounds are like in that particular area. So yeah. there's there's so much more to learn um, in this field uh, that we're still barely scratching the surface. Oh, that's so cool. It's like exciting to know that there's so much out there that we just don't know yet. Yeah, exactly. The, yeah, the excitement of discovery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can move on um, to specifically discussing the Fish Sounds website. Um, so could you just describe sort of what the process of assembling that website has been like and what you've learned and kind of the impact you expected to have? So when I first started my master's at the University of Florida, I knew that I wanted to study sounds underwater, um, but was, uh, wasn't able to find funding to study it right away. So I was yeah. poking around for a possible side project I could do while focusing on my master's, which was on something completely unrelated. Yeah. Um, and, and so I just clicked around on the internet was like, Hey, what sound, what fish makes sounds in Cedar Key or the Gulf of Mexico? And mm -hmm. there were no lists. There were no comprehensive lists of what fish made sound. Mm -hmm. um, and so what it turns out that there have been a lot of cataloging efforts of fish sounds over the years, but they've because there are so many fish, they've all yeah. been focused on a particular taxa or a particular region. So if you're lucky enough to be focusing on that taxa or region, then there are probably, uh, or there might be catalogs out there for you. But yeah. if you're not in one of those regions, then there's nothing out there and you have to sort of piecemeal pull it together yourself from the literature. Mm -hmm. And then there was also this number floating around in the literature that there were 800 species of fish known to make sounds. Um, and when you trace back where that number came from, it, it came from the work of uh, Ingrid Katz while she was working on her PhD. And she actually compiled a comprehensive global inventory, but was never able to publish it. So oh. this, this number was out there and she had done all of this work, but the, the list itself wasn't available. Um, so so I um, reached out to a friend uh, that mm -hmm. I had met who worked in a bioacoustics lab, Kieran Cox, was like, hey, am I interpreting this giant gap in the literature currently, <laughs> making sure that there wasn't some list of fish that makes sound out there? So I didn't just jump headfirst into something that had already been done. And he, <laughs> yeah. he was like, no, this has been something the field has been calling for for decades. And just no one has been able to sit down and, and go through the process of actually compiling it 
So um, I put together a systematized review framework where um, it's sort of like a systematic review where you treat it like a scientific process. You have clearly mm -hmm. outlined methods of what you did and didn't do, the biases associated with it. Yeah. Um, and then in, in contrast to systematic reviews, I was the sole reviewer, usually of multiple people to sort of confirm that the mm -hmm. results are correct. So that was one big difference. Um, but I, because I had this whole method laid out, I thought it would be feasible to do. And if it yeah. turned out that I was taking on way too much, then I, I set it up so that I could jump out of the project at a certain time and still have a complete inventory of something like marine mm -hmm. subtropical species. Gotcha. But um, this led me to uh, surveying almost 3,000 references, including oh, books, reports, journal articles, and my favorite, a music album from the year 1952, um, oh. <laughs> and, uh, from, uh, published by the Smithsonian on Fish Sounds, uh, my oh, favorite reference. So <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, but I, yeah, so I surveyed any reference I could find from the year 1874, which was sort of when the field became a scientific focus, mm -hmm. up to the year 2020. And I, I also looked at different languages. So this included, uh, I surveyed literature from 11 different languages to try oh, wow. to subvert all of as English bias uh, yeah, that can come into the literature awesome. and led me to finding all of those exciting studies from the Soviet Union and Japan about yeah. passive fish sounds. So it worked out really well. Um, but from that giant initial survey, I found 834 references that had a published examination of a fish species for sound production mm. um, and independent reporting. So they weren't just citing someone else's work and that yeah. they identified the fish to the species level. Cause a lot of times they're like, mm. we're pretty sure this is in the drum family, but we're not really sure what species yeah, it is. Will, so I, I didn't count those. Um, but mm. from those, I found 1,185 fish species that have been examined for sound production up until 2020, mm -hmm. and um, 989 species that were shown to make active sounds. Oh, cool. So it was super exciting to have that number and how closely it related to that 800 number that was getting um, yeah, talked about in the literature. Around. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, but in addition to just having that number, I had every reference associated with each individual species. And so this was an enormous resource that mm -hmm. I wanted to make as widely available as possible so that no one else would have to do all the work I just yeah, did. Exactly. Um, and also to help anyone working in the field, like when I was first starting out, you know, having having a resource to be able to just type in a species and and know what had been studied and what hadn't been on that on that particular species. Yeah. So from the beginning, that was my primary goal. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to be contacted by a researcher named Amelie Striera, at the, also at the University of Victoria, along with Kieran Cox. And uh, she was like, hey, heard about your inventory. What if we did recordings as well? Um, um, and I was like, yeah, sounds great. <laughs> and it turns out she was part of a working group called Meridian, who was um, focused on creating web applications related to different bioacoustics topics. So I had a one hour Zoom meeting with the leaders of that group. And they were like, we love your project. We love your idea. This review is great. Let's make a website. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, <laughs> it was a very surreal experience. Um, but then they uh, 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 gave, uh, gave us part-time from their primary web designer, Sarah Vela. Mm -hmm. And since then, we worked for about a year and a half developing the initial uh, build of the website, which it also included recordings, as well as additional information that I was compiling with the help of an undergraduate researcher, Santiago Bravo, and yeah. also some acoustic characteristics pulled from the literature, all in the name of helping anyone in the research field search about the fish species that they were studying. Yeah, that's so um, cool. I mean, it's like the ultimate reference. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, so that that's sort of how the project came about. It was very, I was very fortunate the whole way to have such amazing collaborators um, to, to sort of guide me along this process. And yeah. um, so now the version one of the website is live at fishsounds.net. Um, and so any of your listeners would be welcome to check it out and start poking around the data themselves. That's awesome. I will definitely include the link for the episode too, so people can go check it out. Wonderful. Awesome. And then alongside all of this work, you've also conducted research on fish sounds and soundscapes um, at a range of different scales. So could you talk to me about your other projects for your PhD? Uh, sure. So I had this big review that I was uh, able to put together and I was like, I want to record fish sounds for myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I um, picked a study species, the Gulf toadfish, which is one of the most prolific collars in uh, Gulf of Mexico seagrass meadows in particular. Mm -hmm. And um, their acoustic characteristics and behavior have been talked about in the literature, but not comprehensively described all in one place. So I'm, uh, I have been um, conducting snapshot surveys of their spatial distribution of their calls in the seagrass meadows around Cedar Key. And then this year I'll be able to deploy acoustic recorders to capture any of their diel, you know, day night variation in their calling. Yeah. And then I'll, take all of the calls that I've collected and, and run a bunch of acoustical analyses to fully document their variation, their calls and, and their calling behaviors. And this is, I, as I was already in the middle of doing my snapshot sampling for them, mm -hmm. I realized that they're actually possibly, um, or they have been introduced into Brazil and there's oh. concern about them becoming an invasive species uh, by spreading because they are very generalist feeders yeah. and they're fairly hardy in terms of temperature ranges. Um, mm -hmm. So there's there's concern that they could begin spreading. Yeah, um, they sort of from meet where, the profile of vertebrates. Yeah, and they've been moving, they've been detected in several bays along the coast of Brazil now. So now the hope is that, um, you know, in addition to the ecological implications of studying a, such a prolific sound producer that it can also mm -hmm. be put to an applied purpose of helping them de detect their invasion um, yeah. through the use of short samplings that I've been able to conduct myself. Um, that's so that's one example of a fish study, um, but I've also been looking at the intertidal soundscapes of a living shoreline versus a hardened shoreline to see if the restoration changed the soundscape or even just what those intertidal soundscapes sound like as they've been very limited uh, in, in being studied. Um, just in, as, as with a lot of other <laughs> underwater ecosystems, there's just yeah. so much more to discover. Um, and then also this year, I'll be delving more into the idea of the impacts of human-made noise onto underwater ecosystems. Um, so there's continuously growing evidence that uh, human-made noise coming from shipping, construction, sonar, anything um, that humans make can be yeah. negatively impacting not just marine mammals, but also <laughs> fish, invertebrates, even marine plants. But um, oh wow, I didn't know about the plants. That's so interesting. Yeah, that was a recent paper. It changed their physiology in a way that huh. um, could have impacted their ability to their their fitness to to survive, uh, which was very interesting to read about for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's just been one study on them so far because it's such a new topic. But there's mm -hmm. growing concern that we might need to start considering regulations of human-made noise more seriously um, and in a more comprehensive way, but we don't have the data to necessarily yeah. describe how much it is impacting underwater ecosystems. Mm -hmm. um, so I, along with my some of my collaborators, are hoping to do a multi-ecosystem study to yeah. look at how uh, habitat structure can dampen 
noise transmission. Mm -hmm. So if you have more dense habitat structure like seagrass or kelp, um, then maybe sound won't be able to travel as far the, uh, far into those habitats and you'll yeah. have uh, com fish communities that are more prevalent um, in sound producers or more um, specialized here. Um, sorry, fish that are able to hear more with more specialized systems. Mm. Um, so that's the exciting field work I'll be taking on this year. Um, yeah. And hope to hope to find out more about the community level impacts of human made sound. That's so interesting. Man, I'll be excited to see what you guys find with that. I guess, yeah, it makes total sense though that for, you know, all the species who are so reliant on sounds, you know, I guess humans don't realize how loud <laughs> we actually are. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, the human-made sound can impact organisms through direct damage, which is some of the more, you know, exciting news stories you'll see yeah, about like marine the... mammals. <laughs> Um, but it's probably far more likely that it's more of a chronic pollutant and, and that'll it'll cause increases to stress or changes yeah. in behavior that just like slightly modify the fish enough that it could be hurting or other organisms that it could be hurting their ability to reproduce or survive. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and then as you touched on, there's also the idea of masking. So if you're picturing, picture yourself in a really loud restaurant um, it can be uh, really hard to hear the people you're sitting with, uh, pre-COVID, of course. Yeah, um, <laughs> right. Um, uh, but you know, with uh, with fish or other organisms that hear, it's the same problem where suddenly you might not be able to advertise reproduction to as great a distance um, yeah. or to as many fish um, because of just the loud noise all around you. Yeah, that makes sense. In addition to your research, you're very busy. <laughs> um, <laughs> you've also been involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts at NCBS. Um, so could you, I guess, kind of describe how you've been leading that initiative there? Sure. So two summers ago, it was the start of COVID, and there were also um, the George Floyd protests going on all around the country and the world. Um, and I started having more conversations with a group of grad students at the Nature Coast Biological Station, or SPS. Yeah. Um, and, and we were really interested in just creating more organized uh, DEI-promoting structures at NCBS. Um, because of how we're positioned, we interact with the, the community of Cedar Key a lot with volunteering, outreach, or conducting research. Yeah, and ninety nine percent of our interactions with the community are really positive, but then occasionally, you know, people have have difficulties because of their identities, um, and there wasn't uh, a comprehensive support structure or reporting mechanism um, or response system to really deal with those in a in a clearly identifiable way. So this yeah. was one of the main things that we wanted to focus on was just increasing the ability of people to be able to talk about any issues that they have mm -hmm. um, and then to, to have uh, mechanisms in place to know how to deal with them in a way that would lead to effective change. So mm -hmm. it's, I, I ended up being uh, the co-founder and co-chair of the DEI committee at the station. Mm -hmm. I had, never led something like this before. I, yeah. I had read a lot about it, but had never had never been really in charge of something like this. So it was absolutely amazing to be able to get really widespread support from everyone at the station, including our director, uh, Mike Allen, as well yeah. as the other staff and faculty. Everyone was really on board with um, creating meaningful changes at the station. And so as part of that, process, we've been um, able to create annual DEI strategic plans with clearly outlined goals and reporting mechanisms. We host regular workshops on different DEI topics just to learn more about what different people go through on a regular basis and, yeah. and how best to help support them. 
Um, we set up a graduate student mentoring program to make sure that new grad students knew who everyone was at the station, knew how to maneuver through all the paperwork that can go along with <laughs> yeah. starting grad school, what classes to sign up for, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and just trying to, to provide as much support to um, the people who work at the st station as possible. Um, and then now we've been starting to expand or look more closely at our recruitment practices. Yeah. Um, we've, we're going to partner with a historically Black university, FAMU, this year mm -hmm. um, to set up an internship program with them. And, and just overall, just trying to make as many, um, as many systems in place as possible to ensure everyone feels like they have a comfortable, inclusive working environment. Um, yeah, and it's just so been, cool. yeah, it's been a really, really enjoyable pro uh, process. We still have so much more to learn and work towards, but um, I've been really grateful to have the opportunity to learn alongside all my lab mates at the station. Yeah, no, it's so exciting. I mean, it sounds like, you know, you've made so much progress already and it's just, I guess, cool to see um, an organization like actively reflecting and putting those channels in place. Um, right. I think the, yeah, that's sort of the future and what needs to happen. So that's great. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I think that brings us to the end of the questions I have prepared for you, but we still have the five questions that I ask every guest. Um, so to start off, I gotta ask, what is your favorite fish? So as I touched on, uh, <laughs> Big surprise, it's my study species. Yeah. Um, the the Gulf toadfish. Um, I always think that grumpy looking fishes are the cutest. Um, and the Gulf toadfish are particularly grumpy and also like a little ugly in a way that they're cute. Yeah. And they also happen to be really, really important sound producers. Um, and they're actually the logo of, of the Fish Sounds website um, because they were. Uh, the first fish sound I ever recorded and also yeah. uh, a part of the toadfish family, which are the model sound producers of fish to, for mm -hmm. scientists to study. So it was very fitting. Yes. <laughs> and it's now my favorite fish. A noisy species and they have a special place in your heart. That's cool. Exactly. <laughs> um, so next up, what is your favorite memory from your career so far? So like if you'll allow me, <laughs> yeah, I have two that okay, I like to fine. contrast back and forth. Yeah. So the first is, uh, it was the first summer I was doing research. Uh, I had a research internship out on Catalina Island. It was one mm -hmm. of the last dives of the season. And we were just doing like a fun recreational dive. Um, yeah. And we came across a great white shark swimming very so close cool. to shore in a place that it was not supposed to be <laughs> oh <laughs> and and my response was to giggle with excitement <laughs> um and I, I was from that point on I was like okay I really enjoy <laughs> diving yeah yeah, you yeah, came um, a long way from being scared of the ocean to them exactly <laughs> to giggling at a great white shark yeah yeah um and the best part about that was that my dive buddy at the time was about to take a picture of something else and managed to turn just in time to oh, take wow. a picture of the great white shark. So we even had proof of the interaction, which is pretty That's rare. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I like to contrast that with uh, one, a day in the life of uh, a, a scientist <laughs> where I got to cut a thousand lengths of PVC over the course of two days uh, for a, a caging experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, in the middle of that process, I just paused and was like, yes, this is my job. <laughs> and, and I love the variety that comes with uh, this field and this work. Um, and so that as silly or as, as onerous at the time as that activity was, I still really enjoyed it. And it sort of encapsulates the, the <laughs> varied experiences you can get on the day-to-day -day, um, <laughs> in this field. Part. Yeah. It's like, you never yeah. know what you're going to have to do. <laughs> exactly. You might have to just, you know, become a makeshift engineer one day and then yeah <laughs> you know, you're and then be writing on your computer the next yeah <laughs> oh yeah exactly coding <laughs> yeah. awesome um so next 
I guess, what is your dream job and or location if you have a location that you like? Um, so my, uh, uh, one of my hobbies is language learning. Mm. Uh, I, I'm somewhat fluent in French and Spanish and I'm working on Japanese now. Oh, and cool. I've always wanted to work at least temporarily in a place where English is not the dominant language. Yeah, it would be incredibly challenging, um, but <laughs> very fun for me as someone who really loves languages and communicating um, to people in their own native languages. That it would just be a, a dream job for sure to to be able to work somewhere where I could operate in that space. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, you definitely get that immersion, but I'm sure it must be challenging to, um, you know, kind of take on science in a different language um, right because I know yeah the language used in science can almost bar people from participating <laughs> when there's exactly you know, a and lot of jargon yeah and that sort of thing mm-hmm. yeah a big challenge in science and one that I'm very interested in uh considering to learn more about yeah but that's yeah. awesome mm-hmm. and I mean maybe you can sort of help other people bridge that <laughs> if you go through it yourself right. so yeah yeah exactly I increase my own understanding of yeah um okay so next up if money was not an issue um and you could kind of do whatever what is one project that you'd like to work on um so I didn't touch on this uh yet but there's mm-hmm. actually two modes of hearing for fish one yeah. is acoustic pressure, which mm-hmm. is how, what we primarily detect with hydrophones that relates to frequency um, and sort of how humans hear sound, but they can also hear with particle motion. That's actually their primary form of hearing. Um, mm-hmm. It's a little complicated to explain the difference, <laughs> but if you yeah. think of us Briefly, if you think of a sound wave, um, acoustic pressure is talking about the movement of the wave itself as it passes through particles, mm-hmm. whereas particle motion is the movement of the particles that stay relatively stationary but wiggle back and forth as the waves mm-hmm. of sound pass through them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but um, even though particle motion is uh, how a lot of fish here predominantly over acoustic pressure, there hasn't really been um, widely available equipment to measure particle motion. Um, Uh It's slowly becoming more available and there are more papers being published studying particle motion. But if money was not an issue, I would want to uh, look more at particle motion and describing especially coastal soundscapes in terms of particle motion as it can be completely different from sound pressure when you're talking mm-hmm. about shallow water environments. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that would be a huge boost to the field, it sounds like. Right. So, yeah, so cost. even though, <laughs> yeah, so as I said, there's so much more we need to discover in terms of soundscapes, uh, in terms of measuring acoustic pressure, and then there's even more in terms yeah, of measuring like particle motion. there's a door to open right there. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) Okay, well, I guess that brings us to the last question. I'm kind of bummed because I've been enjoying this a lot. But (laughs) um, if there was one point or principle that you could just have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? Um, so I had to think about this quite a lot uh, yeah, to try to, a <laughs> it's a, it's a tricky question, but I really enjoy it. Um, yes. So again, I have two, one serious and one funny. <laughs> Love it. Perfect. Um, so the first was that um, something I've thought a lot about in terms of scientific philosophy, and then also in my diversity, equity, inclusion work is that Um, the one point I would want to program (laughs) to everyone's head is that everyone has biases Mm -hmm. and, and that's okay. Um, to, as long as you work to identify them and, and combat them. So that's Mm -hmm. the point of, you know, doing randomized sampling and science or, you know, investigating your implicit biases and employing equitable 
procedures yeah. to co- combat those implicit biases. So just having everyone be more comfortable acknowledging mm-hmm. what the, their biases are and that they may be biased. Um, and then yeah. so that we can work more to combat them for science's betterment. Yeah, oh, that makes sense. I mean, it's important for you know society as a whole in addition to just science <laughs> but exactly and then my my other point is that fish sounds are cool <laughs> yes I support that <laughs> very true awesome well I think those are the perfect <laughs> points to leave off on so um with that thank you so much Audrey for coming on the show I really enjoyed learning about all of your research and what you've been up to no thank you so much for having me I really enjoyed the conversation If you want to find out more or get a hold of Audrey, you can reach her by email at aluby, that's A-L-O-O-B-Y, at ufl.edu. Make sure to check out the Fish Sounds website at fishsounds.net and follow the Fish Sounds team on Twitter at fishsoundsweb. If you would like to get a hold of me, you can find me and the rest of the hosts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or by old-fashioned email feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast logo shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Hannah. Thank you for listening to the 164th episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, it's important to reflect on your own biases as scientists and as people. Also, fish sounds are really cool. And with that, I'll let Audrey's favorite fish, the Gulf Toadfish, close out this episode. Thank <laughs> you.